didn't love singing along to the theme tune to Maid Marian and her Merry Men. I know you're going to hate me for talking over it, but I have to introduce my guest for today. He's the creator and writer of the show that gave us 26 perfect episodes of joy, rabies and lots of mud, as well as starring in it as the Sheriff of Nottingham. He's an all-round telly legend. Joining me via Zoom, it's Sir Tony Robinson. Sir Tony, hello. Thank you so much for joining me today. How has your lockdown been? I heard you rehomed a dog a few days before it began. Yeah, I, I've had a fantastic lockdown, which sounds an awful thing to say when so many people are dying and having terrible illnesses. Mm. I've been very fortunate in that everything's worked out right. I'm the worst planner in the world, but we kind of planned lockdown and it's all worked. Uh, we lost our dog about three years ago, which is was as traumatic as it is for everybody else. And so we hadn't had a new dog. And we had just about got to the state where we thought we would like a new dog. And with lockdown coming, my wife did a great internet trawl. And we found this little battered Westie in RSPCA Derby. And we had a quick conversation with them. And they said, yes, you can come up and have a look. And that was my, the final long drive that I took before, before shutdown really started. And we went up there and we fell in love with her. And she was so poorly. And she'd been a rescue. She was an intervention. You know, she'd been treated so badly. And there were two dogs called Holly in that particular dog home. And so they called our one Holly Berry to distinguish her from the other one. And we just thought that was the greatest name ever. So we've had Holly Berry with us for about six months, I suppose now. And we've just absolutely doted on her and initially at least had to give her loads of medicines and was back and forth towards mm. the vet. And gradually, like one of those crinkled Japanese flowers in water, she's come to life. Aww. And what's so cute is that she is seven. But once she came out of that really silent, frightened quality that she had when we first got her, she learned how to be a puppy again. And she's she's like she's she's about a teenage now, <laughs> slightly irritable and quirky sometimes, but absolutely wonderful. <laughs> and that's been tremendous. And that and she has been the, the the shape of our our lockdown. But I also I at the start of lockdown, I was about two stone overweight. I'd I'd been round the world twice in the last three years for a series predictably called Round the World by Train. And had actually put on an enormous amount of weight just because it's a very static thing to do. And when you're away, there isn't much else to do but eat, particularly if you're mm. day after day in a train. And I thought, I cannot be two stone overweight with this illness, which is going to have a particular attack on people over 70, and particularly the fatties. So I got on the bike and gave up drinking and all those kind of things, and I've lost two stone. And I'm so pleased with myself. I'm back to how I was about 15 years ago. Good for you. And, of course, walk the dog twice a day, so I'm really fit. Has your phone just become full of pictures of the dog now? <laughs> Which is what my phone is like with cats. <laughs> Absolutely. And they all actually, you think you've captured her in a totally different way than you captured her previously, and they all look the same. Really. <laughs> Okay, so let's get down to business and head into the nostalgia zone. Obviously, there's so much affection for the role that shot you to fame, Baldrick and Blackadder, but but we're not going to talk about that today. Today, we're going to talk about a show that I loved watching as a kid, Maid Marian 
and Her Merry Men. So as well as starring in it as the Sheriff of Nottingham, it was, of course, your baby because you created it and wrote it as well. And it was your daughter, Laura, who inspired you to have Marion running the gang and not Robin. Tell me a bit about that. Laura was tiny. I know, given my frame, you you will find that very surprising. She, <laughs> she never wore a dress. She always wore trousers. She was about nine or ten at the time. And she decided that she wanted to be the striker in the primary school football team. She had no natural footballing talent. But what she did have was authority, certainly as far as the boys were concerned. Mm. And I never saw her team win a match. But she would race round the playground, surrounded by this swarm of boys like bees, berating them for playing so badly. <laughs> and if ever she got the ball, it just bounced off her. And she would berate the person who'd passed it for such an inept pass. <laughs> and I remember just watching it and thinking, oh, my God, if she'd been in Robin Hood's gang, he wouldn't be running it. <laughs> and it was just that perception. I just remember the image of her in the playground, fiery and tiny and uh, mm. kind of brilliant, that started me writing it. I mean, watching it as an adult now, I think I actually probably appreciate it even more than than I did when I was a kid in terms of the writing and how funny and clever it, it is. I mean, I loved so, so many scenes, but things like Barrington and Rabies getting tortured and they're just strung up over revolving feather dusters that are just tickling their feet. Um, <laughs> having come from adult comedy, how difficult is it to write for children so that they they get the joke but it's not patronizing for them in a way I take issue with that phrase writing for children Mm. I think whenever you write you're actually writing for yourself and if that doesn't if that sounds terribly narcissistic what I mean is you find within yourself a place where you feel at home with the people that you're writing it for Mm. and I had You know how if you're a parent or if you've worked with children, whenever you think about them, there's a sort of space within you that your mind goes to Mm. and your emotions go to. And I was writing into that place. So it wasn't as though I was writing it for Laura or even for her class. I was just writing into how I felt when I was in that area. So the words would naturally come because they would be the words that I would use to communicate with those kids at at that time. Sorry, it's a rather Mm. metaphysical description, but (laughs) you understand what I mean. Yeah, if you're talking about meta episodes, there was the one where you talk about Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, and uh, (laughs) Raby saying, do you think I'll be in it? And uh, of course he was actually in in the film, wasn't he? Yes, he wasn't that weird. I could write virtually what I wanted to in those days. I have to say it was a collaboration with my friend David Bell, who was the director, who I'd known for years since we did schools radio together Mm. for the BBC a number of years prior to that. Um, But I remember writing a line for Maid Marian, men, they promise you the world and you end up flat on your back servicing their muck spreader. (laughs) (laughs) It sailed through. Wouldn't now. Yeah, there, there were a lot of jokes which I'm, which you would never get away with today, innuendos and stuff. I think what I wanted to do, you see, even with a line like that, I mean, ideologically, it's absolutely right, isn't it? Even though there's a double entendre mm. that, that, that women are romanced time and time again into a subservient position. Um, so I felt that I was I was kind of addressing kids in, in with that metaphor, but also deep down in the back of my mind, there was t- a tongue-in-cheek there as well. Mm. I never wanted to write anything that the kids wouldn't take something from, but I also wanted to write things that that 
adults would take something from too, which I think is what Roald Dahl has always done, which Joan Aiken did, which the Brothers Grimm did. Mm. I think, you know, going back to that long, tedious response about who I write for, I think it, that's just the tradition of people who write for children. Mm. And I guess it was un- unusual for a children's programme to not actually have any children in it. You know, in terms of the main cast, they were all adults. I know people say never work with children or animals. You had chickens in there, but, but no, no children. I did, yeah, there, were, there were a couple of peasant children, one of whom ended up being a long-term regular on... Uh, Kelly Bright, yes. That's right. I was terribly proud when I saw her as a grown-up on, on EastEnders. But yeah, but, but uh, the whole thing was a kind of a metaphor for how we all are, kids and, and adults. So I didn't need to have children in, really. I loved all the, the music every episode, not least the theme song, which I have been singing around the house all week. My husband's been singing it all week as well. He now hates me for that. <laughs> yeah, that was very deliberate. We really wanted to write a kind of Aretha-like celebratory um, opening number, which kids would sing. And, and I, I, it worked absolutely perfectly. I was so proud of that. Mm. And was it a decision, a conscious decision to have music every episode as well? I mean, I, I mean, as well as the theme tune, I've been singing songs like Pancake Day for <laughs> around the house as well. Well, yeah, I mean, I've always, in my mind, there is always music. Mm. And when I speak and when I write, it's always, I always feel in some way I write in bars. You know what I mean? They're like musical bars. And I see the dots going up and down, up and down. And there's so, so much part of my world that I would not have wanted to include music. Mm. Some of the word include music is wrong. I just wanted the whole thing to feel musical, not like a musical, but just feel yeah. musical. Yeah. Um, a lot of actors say it's more fun playing a baddie than a hero, but presumably it's even more fun when you get to write your own lines as the baddie. I think that's right. I, I had spent the previous six or seven years being cute, uh, i.e. as Baldrick in, in a comedy. Uh that was the last thing I wanted to do. We did discuss the possibility of me, of me playing Robin Hood, but the conclusion that we came to was that it would be best if I was the villain because the villain always dictates the pace of a show. And it meant that I could, in a way, I could be the conductor as well as being in it, particularly with the, the voice that I used was kind of really sort of traditional Alan Howard, Roger Shakespeare company delivery, all that sort of... Which is great for kind of steering the ship of a show. You must have been great fun being able to deliver some of those insults <laughs> to, to people all the time, Gary and Graham particularly. <laughs> my, my, yeah, that's an, that's another great story, isn't it? That uh, Gary and Graham, my two Norman idiot soldiers, have both gone on to be successful writers. Uh, Dave Lloyd uh, writes, I think, uh, at least a quarter of all the Doctor's episodes, <laughs> and uh, and Mark Billingham is now you know one of our leading crime writers. Yes, he's like one of the best-selling crime writers of the twenty-first century now, isn't he? In the world ever. And we're still, the three of us are still in touch. We were talking about the possibility of doing a West End musical of, uh, of, of Maid Marian last year and the year before. But mm. in a way, COVID's kind of knocked it on the head and it wasn't going in the right direction anyway, to be quite frank. But I'm now, um, I'm talking to Netflix about the possibility of, of some kind of revamp of Maid Marian in the future, which would be very exciting. Oh, cool. That's brilliant. Um, so did, did you do like a, was there a previous musical in the late 90s? Well, yes. Well done with your research. Yes. 
we for about four weeks. That sounded like the sheriff. Didn't it? <laughs> um, we uh, we ran for about four weeks at the Bristol Old Vic, uh, doing a musical in the in the nineties. And that, but that was because I lived in Bristol at the time, mm. and Dave Lloyd lived in Bristol, and it was you know like a kind of thing you do for your home. So, what would you envisage a, a Netflix revival of? I mean, I was I was thinking that if it was, you must get asked about bringing it back for one-off specials all the time. And I'm thinking like Marion and Barrington have married and they're having little merry children. I've, I've coined them uh, Marrington, like, like Brangelina had their showbiz name. <laughs> would, it, would it just kind of take off from where it finished or it would be like a whole new set of people? I think it would be a whole new, I think I would, it, it, I'd kind of like to start again. I would like to discover that voice of the television Marion from scratch. Mm. Uh, I've got some ideas, which I will keep absolutely under wraps. But I think as soon as I told you some of the people that we had in mind for the cast, I think you would, you'd get where I was going. But I'm not going to. You will be the first journalist who will hear about it once when the, when the multi-million deal is finally done. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Thank you. Um, do you have a favourite episode or one you're particularly proud of? Or is it like your children where you can't possibly pick? between them people ask me that question uh, about Blackadder as well and I think the thing is that um it's all work in progress Mm. and each episode that you write you're trying to solve a different series of problems that you've uh, that you've set yourself and when you look at them you don't so much think oh which is the best episode you just look at a particular bit and you think oh I solved that bit really well or I just about got away with that. And, oh, why did I go down that direction with that bit? It's just so obviously wrong. Mm. Um, I think most I think most people who write feel the same about that. Uh, it's not the thing as a whole that you look back on. It's, it's all those little bits of problem solving. At the time, obviously, it, it won a BAFTA and an RTS award, yeah. and, and you, you must be very proud of, of those achievements. Does it surprise you that the show is still so fondly remembered by people 30 years later? It's very interesting, actually, because the people who are most passionate about it nowadays tend to be women in their 30s and 40s who saw Maid Marian originally and now have got their own children and actually want want to celebrate the kind of feelings that they felt at that time with their kids. Mm. So we've done a couple of those sort of Comic-Con-type shows where we've done workshops and chats and various things. Yeah. And there's, a, there's a, a lovely solidarity between us as the cast and the mums who are now bringing their own children up to the you know their children you know normally are old enough to get it so yeah. you know they're seven upwards. It's interesting you say that the that it's become popular with with women um, who are in the thirties and forties. I mean that's I, I fall into that category um, yeah. <laughs> minus without the children. Um, but even I guess Marion's evolution through the series as well. I mean I remember like the start of series four, she cut all her hair off, and it was I remember this line that's long hairs for little girls which I mean you know look at me <laughs> I think Marion and my mum came from the same school of thought there um but <laughs> that was simply um, because Kate had just done a show where she required short hair so we, <laughs> we had to do that but but uh, it's funny isn't it how often uh something arbitrary like that you have to explain away in the text and actually yeah. it gives the text a big kick up the bum it's a, it's one of the joys of having to deal with issues that you weren't expecting to have to deal with when you were writing yeah and I liked how Marin was always very much like I wouldn't say anti-boys but she was just like boys oh god you know she never whereas Rose was always the one who 
fancied Robin and she was always the person, you know, she's trying to get, but, but Marion was always very much like, no, I, you know, don't need boys. Although there was, I think it was like the, the Christmas episode where there was kind of like a veiled reference that. Much the mini mart manager's son. Yeah. That, so, so that was the only time she felt like she liked a boy. Yeah. I think it like, like any piece of writing is actually a blank canvas for the viewer to project their own feelings about it on. That's just one of the miracles of writing, isn't it? So what you think happened into it in the show is just as justified as what I think happened when I was writing it. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I remember I, I, I did a lot of mask work when I was at National Theatre. This is just prior to, to doing shows like Maid Marian. And one of the bits of magic about when an actor wears a mask and speaks a text, if you talk to the audience afterwards, they all say that the mask changed its look during the show. When you ask them when, mm. they'll all describe the same sorts of moments you know, moments of betrayal, moments of sadness, moments of laughter or whatever. But when you ask them what the mask looked like when it changed, they will all come up with a different description because, as it were, the mask has reflected their individual soul rather than, than just the collective. And I think that that's one of the wonderful things about telly, particularly the telly close-up. It is a mask, isn't it? It's why so many of the very good actors, they're not pulling their faces in great distorted directions all the time, apart from the late, great Rick Mayle. Um, you know, like someone like uh, Rowan, for instance, it's, it's actually, it's either very rubbery, his face, or it's very, very still. And you can mm. invest your own feelings and your own emotions in it. And I think that's what I always wanted from Maid Marian. I wanted people to understand there was this girl who was trying to make things good and be a great person, just like Dorothea in Middlemarch. But um, she wasn't able to, just like Dorothea in Middlemarch, because she's surrounded by arse heads. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and all those all those young girls out there who wanted to be brilliant and wanted to be passionate and wanted to be seen and recognised. And yes, fancied as well, even though they didn't think they looked particularly great. And all those kind of that jumble of emotions mm. that early teenagers had. I wanted girls in particular to be able to feel that, but feel it in their own way, not be dictated to by me. Well, it definitely worked for me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, OK, so let's move out of the nostalgia zone now and into what I like to call the latter zone otherwise known as Life After That Thing I Did. So, of course, after Marion, you've done so much and have such a huge body of work, including, obviously, Time Team, numerous history and travel programmes, Man Down more recently, not to mention all your accolades, your involvement in politics, charity work. I mean, we could have like another three podcast episodes on you if we if we followed all your life after you did that thing. But you've also written more than 20 books. And um, to continue our young person theme, I'd like for us to talk about all the children's books that you've written and they're all um history yeah. focused um and i love that they're all illustrated with cartoons and drawings and you've written about the romans and the greeks and the egyptians and kings and queens and the first and second world war um but what is it that attracts you to the past so much what i love so much about the past is it tells you who you are uh each one of us as individuals it's just it, it's just this extraordinary weird miracle that we're here isn't it who the heck is this? Who are you, Genevieve? How, how did you get mm. 
to be there. You, you can only really tell by looking at all the things from the past. You know, the way you speak is determined by the past, the way you think, the way you look, the house that you live in, the, the language that you use, everything, everything, everything is you are like at the front point of the past. And I just think that's bloody wonderful and inexplicable and glorious. So in a way, I'm interested in the past, not because it's about the past, but because it's about the present. And also because the direction that you're pointing is in is also defined by everything about you that came from the past. So actually, the good thing about the past is it tells you about the future. And it's that conundrum that I've always absolutely enjoyed. enjoyed. And also because... Part of me has never believed there really was a past. I don't see how they could have. I don't see how people could have spoken a stupid way <laughs> like people did in Shakespeare's time or wear those ridiculous costumes. It just didn't happen. And people have always been just like I am now. Except, no, that's not true. But trying to make that imaginative leap, I've always thought, was, was enormous fun. And again, why did you choose to write books aimed at children, um, which is, I guess, arguably harder than writing history books for adults because not you know, only do you have to make it entertaining for them, but sometimes you have to deal with difficult topics. I'm thinking specifically about your World War II book where, you know, you had to explain the Nazis and the Holocaust. I've always had an embarrassingly deep love for my children. And that place is probably the most accessible place in the whole of my body and soul and heart. So I have tended to write to that place even though they are now, well, my daughter's a successful novelist herself now, so that's kind of really weird, isn't it? Um, <laughs> and I, I, I like being in that place. And uh, until fairly recently, there seemed to me to be a real shortage of real engaged factual books for children. Mm -hmm. And I felt that I could do something to, um, to fill that void. Mm -hmm. And probably also because I'm such a big kid that the idea of me <laughs> writing anything grown up is ridiculous. <laughs> I was going to say, so yeah, you still have this um, kind of anarchic tone to your books, um, especially ones like uh, Worst Children's Jobs in History. I, I liked you had, um, you talked about being a, a fuller's apprentice and how you had to spend all day treading in a barrel full of someone else's we, for example. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I just love all this stuff. <laughs> Do you think that's the only way that you can make history accessible for children though and to, to try and no no I don't it. think it's the only way at all I just say all I can do is, is is offer what offer what I've got and let people go away and uh, and and see things in their own way um the guy who was head of factual television at uh, at channel four uh, 30 years after I wrote Odysseus the greatest hero of them all he said thank you very much I just so loved Odysseus mm -hmm. that I went to classics at you know, Oxford or Cambridge and it was just lovely for me because I thought he just took that little tickle from me and used that tickle to make a whole life out of it. Wow that must be really satisfying to know that you know not just with with TV but your books as well and with Time Team that you can inspire so many people to either study archaeology or study classics or want to start writing TV or something that you've you've touched so many people to you know affect their their lives in that way it's an enormous present i mean i didn't know that you were interested in maid marian you were just today's journalist if you were <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, and so to hear how enthusiastic and indeed how knowledgeable you are about maid marian it's lovely for me absolutely lovely it's a nice way to spend the morning thank you you're welcome um have you found that it's becoming more challenging to engage children in history due to the, the distractions of modern technology these days? 
No, I'm just absolutely confident about my ability to be able to do that. That sounds a terrible <laughs> thing to say. I suppose it is. But it's like what I've been doing all my life and I just mm. and I know playing with my grandchildren or meeting other young children. Don't really meet very many young children <laughs> nowadays in the last six months, partly because when you're on television, you're not allowed to get anywhere to meet young children. <laughs> because people will think you have some ghastly, ghastly um, feeling about them and also because of lockdown it's very frustrating because I love being with children I just mm. they always bring me to life and and I feel very easy about my ability to talk to them and presumably you have your your grandchildren to act as barometers for you when you're writing children's books and stuff yeah yes yeah. <laughs> I uh, read you you posted a tweet the other day that said your your granddaughter had a conversation with a friend who said have you been to um was it Greece or Egypt no she, yeah she said her friend said, "Have you have, have you been to Egypt?" And she said, "Yes, but I haven't been to ancient Egypt." <laughs> he has through me is the answer. <laughs> um, have you thought about maybe writing historical fiction? So you mentioned yeah. your daughter Laura before being a successful writer, and she she writes historical fiction as well. Have you thought about maybe freeing historical fiction for children? Yes, I have thought about that a number of times, and I've always just not. I've toyed for a long time with. Uh, writing a, a series about uh, King Alfred. I just think he's the most extraordinary character, really, in British history because he, he was never meant to be king. He was, we think, he was either the, the, the fifth son or the sixth son of his father, who was king of Wessex. And gradually, <laughs> all his brothers got got killed by the Vikings until he, who was the academic <laughs> one and spent a lot of time in Rome studying was brought home and became king of what was probably about 11 square miles by that time because the Vikings were getting closer and closer and closer until all he got was this tiny boggy island in Somerset. <laughs> and, and out of defending that, somehow or other, he transformed the, the whole of Southern, well, he transformed the whole of Wessex and, and the surrounding area into what became the basis for England. And, and wow. so much of what we have as England still comes out of what this studious little boy who was never meant to be king anyway, managed to pull together. How the hell did he do that? How old was he at the time? We don't know for sure, but he was, he can't have been, he must have been in his 20s. Although I, I would like, I'd like to make him younger than that. I would, I'd probably like to make him about 17 or 18. I mean, that sounds like it's made for TV as well, not just, not just a book. Yeah, yeah. And I feel that um, previous series about King Alfred really just haven't, they've just turned him into every other hero mm. rather than thinking about what these particular qualities that, that he had. And there's something else that you've been doing during lockdown too, isn't there? Yeah, it's quite crazy. As soon as lockdown itself finished, a series that I was about to do prior to lockdown was able to start. And because it's all in the open air, it meant that we could do it and socially distance. So I, I'm probably the first person in England to have fronted an eight-part series since <laughs> Since about March, um, a couple of years ago, I made a series where I walked the Thames from mm. the uh, source to the mouth. And for reasons I can't really understand, it got to be incredibly popular, far more popular than anything I think that I've done since Time Team. Mm. And so Channel 5 asked me to do another series. And I, I immediately assumed it would be about a different river, the Clyde or the Seven or whatever. And they said, no, we want you to do eight more about the Thames. I said, but I've oh, wow. walked the whole damn thing. And they <laughs> zigzag across. 
And, <laughs> and what I realised I hadn't really talked very much about was the fact that the Thames is transforming incredibly. The more clogged London gets, the more important it is for the Thames to be used as a motorway in the same way that it was during Henry VIII's time. And it's mm. getting cleaner all the time. Um, and it's getting more attractive to live by all the time. So we're actually reinventing the Thames itself. And, of course, there are millions of people actually involved in that transformation. And so I've been going around meeting them all, and it's been very inspiring. And, and And to do that out of this enormous puzzling tragedy of covid was was doubling should, should i ask you the controversial question of which side you preferred the north or the south i'm not going to answer that <laughs> other than to tell you that i'm from north london so am i <laughs> that is the right answer <laughs> <laughs> but we're all part of this wonderful soup <laughs> Before we finish, you support the Roald Dahl Marvellous Children's Charity and during lockdown you've been supporting their nurses' appeal. I just wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about that. I think one of the most important things, particularly if you're a very ill child, is having continuity. Mm. And one of the problems uh, about the NHS, and it's not, it's not the fault of the NHS, but you do tend to get quite a high turnover of, uh, of staff, of nurses. The same, there's exactly the same problem in care homes. It drives me mad. Um, because the wages in care homes are so low, there's this great churn. And so you've got these people who are frightened, lonely, and confused, constantly being confronted by different uh, people with different accents and different attitudes, you know, day after day after day. Mm. So it, it, it's a real problem for the sick generally. And the lovely thing about... Um, what the Royal Dial Trust does is brings continuity of quality and training into, into children's lives so that they can have someone who is a friend, someone who knows all about them, if uh, someone who can brief all the other people who will come into contact with that poorly child mm-hmm. and make sure there's a real continuity in their lives. And I just think that's really important. And so the the appeal has been to fund um, its specialist nurses, isn't it? There's, I think there's so there are nurses all around the country based in hospitals. But they're not just that. Does it doesn't just mean like they're the nurse who's with that with the one child. It means that they have a number of skills which they can bring to bear on a number of children around them, and they can brief other people around them as well. So it's it's a it's a full thing. It's not just it's not just getting one um, Florence Nightingale in to look after one child. And especially during this time as well, when these children are probably at, at more risk. Fundamentally important, yeah. Tony, it's been a real treat talking to you today. It's been so fascinating. Um, to quote the Sheriff of Nottingham, I feel like your brain must be so big that it comes out of your ears. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you so much for your time today. Lovely to talk to you. Thanks, Jen. Well, I don't know about you, but I can't wait for Maid Marian to make a comeback. Let's keep all our fingers and toes crossed it happens. Maybe we should start a campaign. Huge thanks again to Sir Tony for joining me. And if you'd like to find out more about the Roald Dahl Marvellous Children's Charity or donate to their appeal, you can go to rolddahl.com charity. You can also find the link in the show notes, as well as a couple of links if you'd like to relive Maid Marian on DVD. Hope you enjoyed today's episode of Celebrity Catch-Up. 
I know there's lots of podcasts to choose from, so thank you for choosing this one. As usual, if you'd like to say hello, you can find me on Instagram at Celebrity Catchup Podcast or on Twitter at Celeb Catchup Pod. And if you'd like to support the show, please leave a rating or a review, or you can buy me a coffee. Find out more in the show notes. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>